Welcome to ACE Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in as we elevate clinical endocrinology by taking deep dives into trends and topics that can help us improve our patient care and global health. Find the latest episodes on aace.com slash podcasts. And now let's meet the endocrine experts who will be talking with us today. Hello and welcome. My name is Vitul Hatipolu. I'm a professor of medicine at Case Western Reserve and a center director for diabetes and obesity center at the University Hospitals. Today, I have the pleasure to have Dr. Elliot Brinton to talk about a hot topic, triglycerides and cardiovascular health. Dr. Brinton is a past president of American Board of Clinical Lipidology and currently serves as a president of Utah Lipid Center. Thank you, Elliot, for coming today. Thank you for the opportunity. I look forward to this. So we always tell our patient to fast before having lipid panels. And what is your practice? What do you think about fasting versus non-fasting triglycerides? If we are not going to have a goal, what should we do? What should we look at then? I love that question, Batul. That is a great question because it's been in the spotlight a lot. And back in the day, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, we would always fast patients and that was fine. And and it certainly makes a difference for triglycerides. It makes a modest difference for HDL and LDL. And then along came a lot of data out of Denmark showing very strong prediction of risk by non-fasting triglycerides. And this was a matter of convenience because you're studying a huge population. You don't want to make everybody fast. There is no doubt that non-fasting triglycerides predict events. There's no question whatsoever. My take on this is a little contrarian, and that is that this is true across a broad population, but we know very little about in an individual patient. What would happen if you tasted a patient three times fasting and then three more times just randomly at whatever time of the day or night? We have only a tiny bit of information, and it just isn't very promising, frankly. So for a huge population, great. I happen to see patients one at a time. I don't see 10,000 patients at once. So for me, it matters a lot more what happens with one patient than with 10,000. So I get that non-fasting is predictive, but I'm managing one patient. And so I have a choice. I can either get the lipids fasting or not. I always try to get them fasting, understanding that non-fasting is still indicative of things. And here's why. First of all, the triglycerides are more accurate. Now, you can say, well, it's roughly 20% or maybe 50% higher if you're not fasting. But then the question is, well, how is it 20 or is it 50? Because, of course, triglyceride-lowering drugs are generally lowering triglycerides 20 to 50%. So it matters if you're trying to assess the efficacy of a triglyceride-lowering drug. And I just told you why we shouldn't maybe bother. But to the degree that we care about triglycerides and response to triglyceride medications, it, it's really shooting ourselves in the foot to introduce that much noise when, in fact, the signal and the noise are the same size. So I don't think I want to do that. There is a slight issue with LDL and HDL. Let's just put that aside. I focus very intently on metabolic syndrome. And if you think about metabolic syndrome, three of the five that you need, so three is enough, right, for the diagnosis, three or four or five of the five. Well, three of those five are based on what? fasting levels. Whoa, fasting levels of what? Glucose, HDL, and triglyceride. Now, granted, HDL doesn't vary enough to matter, but triglycerides do. 
we all know that non-fasting triglycerides are higher. And of course, glucose, I mean, tell me fasting glucose is the same as not fasting. That's not the case. So two out of the five criteria are very much dependent on my measuring fasting blood. Here's another pet peeve I have about non-fasting. My primary care doctor loves to order my tests on the day he sees me. So we see each other usually in the afternoon. I'm not fasting. He sees me and they says, here are the tests. Great. That's really good because that helps him order the tests. But then there's this little thing we called shared decision-making. And shared decision-making is when the doctor and the patient sit down together and say, here's what's happening with your glucose, your triglycerides, whatever else. And so here's what we should do. So instead of having shared decision-making with recent, like within the last week or two, lipids or glucose, what we have is phone tag. So those levels come back, they're non-fasting, which is what we're supposed to do, right? Non-fasting is really great. Well, so the non-fasting levels come back a day or two later, and then the nurse leaves me a phone message and says, even I'm not going to give you the levels, the doc says they're fine. It's like, okay, so where was shared decision-making? I prefer 100 times over to have recent fasting levels. So I'm thinking metabolic syndrome and all that, and it's in hand. Patient comes in and sees me, and I say, oh, here's what your levels were a week ago. Here's where they are right now. And so let's talk. And so we have shared decision-making with current data rather than phone tag with a message, oh, those non-fasting levels were just fine, and then I'll see you in six months. To me, it's just this craziness. I get that it's easier to order the tests on the day you see the patient and you order them and they're drawn non-fasting, but then where's our discussion about those levels? That doesn't happen. So to me, the vast majority of the times, it's better to get fasting ahead of time. And I know that's an extra trip, but assuming that you want to have shared decision-making of current data, that's the only way to do it. So I'm a big fan of fasting. I get that people don't always do it, and I'm okay with that. I mean, if you want to do non-fasting, fine, go for it. It's in the literature. Lots of people recommend it. But my question to the clinician is this. Why deliberately use and obtain suboptimal data? Tell me why you want to do that, and tell me why you don't want to have current fasting data in hand as you sit down with a patient. I mean, none of that makes any sense to me. So if you want to do non-fasting, fine, it's okay. There's a literature about it. Do it. But please don't tell me that it's better to do non-fasting than fasting for all the reasons that I said. And one other thing, by the way, just one little last point, our biggest concern with triglyceride, at least the very high triglyceride, is pancreatitis. There are excellent data that show that fasting triglycerides are excellent predictors of acute pancreatitis risk. So if your fasting is over 500, your risk of pancreatitis goes up like a rocket. Why is that? Well, not because you're going to come into the ER with a triglyceride of 550, and they say, oh, well, that acute pancreatitis is definitely due to the triglyceride of 550. No, here's why. If I tell you to fast, Bitul, ahead of time, two weeks from now, I'm going to draw a fasting blood test. You're going to be on good behavior, right? So your triglyceride at that moment is going to be the lowest it will ever be for the next year. And if your triglyceride at that moment is 550, tell me that the majority of the time your triglyceride is not above 1,000 because you're postprandial and you're not on good behavior. And so it turns out, ironically, that a fasting triglyceride over 500 is a great predictor of acute pancreatitis risk, not because that risk emerges at 600 or 700, but because most of the time you're way above that. So interestingly enough, fasting triglycerides are really good 
And if you want to do non-fasting, do the Big Mac stress test, do whatever you want to do. But don't tell me not to get fasting triglycerides or fasting glucose because they're just way too useful. Thank you so much. This was a lot of great information. And I have a lot more questions. But I wanted to ask your opinion about a patient I just recently saw. And I wanted to pull in your wisdom and perhaps our listeners will also benefit from it. I received a consultation for a young woman who underwent IVF for infertility. She was in her mid-30s. And then she got pregnant. And guess what? During pregnancy, developed this horrifying abdominal pain and uh, hospitalized for hemorrhagic pancreatitis. And her triglycerides were 5,000. And my question to your wisdom and understanding, how would you manage someone who's pregnant and has this very high triglycerides or LDL, for example, as well. And how would you recommend them what to do next? So, because they came to see me because she wanted to get pregnant again. And how yeah, do you so, manage it? And what do you do? I know it's tough, but I... It's a very, very good question. We don't have a one totally simple, one size fits all answer, but let me give you what I can give you. First of all, for LDL, as most of our listeners know, the, the FDA has softened its stance against statins in pregnancy. We have a lot of observational data that really suggests very little, if any, adverse effect. Maybe a slight trend towards a somewhat earlier delivery, maybe slightly smaller birth weight. But the really bad things, the things that you can never overcome, like the birth defects, they just don't seem to be increased. So on the one hand, we're not endorsing statins in every pregnancy. But... If somebody conceives while on a statin, that's generally fine. I mean, you know, the decision about ending the pregnancy is a totally different question, but it's not a mandatory thing. There's really very little evidence of significant harm. That's very important. Secondly, in terms of LDL management, there is a treatment that is almost never used and is almost always the best treatment. If you have somebody with severe hypercholesterolemia, I mean, really high, and they're going to be harmed by either spending nine months without treatment or let's say five years without treatment because they're trying to be pregnant over five years and breastfeeding or whatever. So they're not on a statin for that many years and it's often that long and longer. There is a very straightforward fix and that is apheresis. Nobody talks about lipoprotein apheresis, but there are hundred or more centers in the US that do it. It's basically available to everybody except maybe Alaska and Hawaii. Neither one of those states has it. But out here in the West, I'm the only person that does apheresis between Denver and the West Coast. People will drive. They can and will drive from Montana, from Arizona, from wherever they need to drive to come to our center every two to four weeks to get apheresis. It is well worth the effort, I think, for somebody with severe hypercholesterolemia during a pregnancy. You've got to be slightly careful in terms of volume and whatever with an apheresis during pregnancy, but it is by light years the best treatment for LDL during a pregnancy. And during the pre-pregnancy planning period where you're off of treatment for whatever number of years. So please remember apheresis in those most difficult cases. Now, you're not going to do it if somebody's LDL is, is 30 points above goal or whatever. It has to be a more severe case. But those are the patients, the very patients that are at the highest risk for having an event. And every now and again, we'll see a patient who has had a cardiovascular event and she wants to get pregnant. Well, don't. I mean, you can decide maybe to put her on the statin. 
but you may want to decide to give rapheresis because her lack of control during the pregnancy is, is a problem. And you're going to be laying down extra layers of plaque during a pregnancy and especially with the preconception period of time. So please keep that in mind. Now, with regard to triglyceride, it's a little trickier. Apheresis does not work for severe hypertriglyceridemia. Something that's related but different is plasmapheresis or plasma exchange. And that is a treatment that can be done and probably should be done in the case where the patient's sitting in the hospital and they've got acute pancreatitis and you've got to lower the triglyceride quickly. You can do plasma exchange. It's a little cumbersome, but it works. But then here's where we have to think ahead of time. And, and hopefully we are doing this in the preconception planning. If a woman comes to us and she wants to be pregnant and her triglycerides, let's say, are above, pick a number, 300 or so, then we've got to be much more careful about treating their triglycerides. So I just got through saying, we're not sure that there is a threshold above which we need to treat triglycerides or a, a goal below which we need to get for prevention of ASCBD. But what about pancreatitis? Okay, different story. So I want to treat that woman how? Well, I could give her phenofibrate, but phenofibrate is not recommended during pregnancy. There is, and statins maybe, but remember statins, you've got to really have a compelling reason, I think, to use a statin. So even though statins are pretty good for the higher triglycerides, I mean, I use fibrate and statin all the time for reducing acute pancreatitis risk in patients with a fasting TG over 500. That's easy, except... With pregnancy, and then the question is, you probably don't want to use phenofibrate unless you have to, or any other fibrate, and the statins are a little dicey. Here's where fish oil comes to the rescue. And what do we do with every woman who's pregnant? Well, we give her DHA. All right, we better give her DHA because there's a ton of DHA that goes into the growing brain. In fact, we have to continue DHA after delivery because the brain continues to grow, and you better have it either in your uh, formula or in the breast milk if the woman's breastfeeding, which is always better. So the DHA supplementation is a really smart thing. So here's an easy workaround. A drug that I do not recommend for lowering uh, ASCVD risk, which is generic omega-3 ethyl ester. And to translate that into English, that's generic lovesa. There's, with strength, my willingness to use that for ASCVD prevention has basically vanished because it has even more DHA than is Epinova, which went down in flames with strength. And so even though I might've been inclined to use this less expensive, but still high quality prescription omega-3, I just don't dare for ASCVD prevention. But what about in a woman whose triglyceride is high and we're trying to do glucose control, of course, and a majority of these people either have diabetes or metabolic syndrome. So Let's do our due diligence there, and diet and lifestyle are very important. But then the question is, what else? Well, I would say pull out that generic lovesa and give it to this woman ahead of time. And then during the pregnancy, just like we monitor glucose in a diabetic pregnant woman, let's monitor the triglyceride because it's so much better to put the screws on her diet with her triglycerides, say, at 600 rather than to wait until it's 6,000 and she's in the hospital and you're going, oh my goodness, how did this happen? Well, we weren't monitoring the triglycerides. So let's monitor triglycerides carefully. We don't have a good at-home way to do this, but we can monitor it periodically in the clinic. And we really should because a woman whose triglyceride pre-pregnancy is 400 or 500 is at high risk to develop exactly what you described. And we are, I think, negligent if we're not being more careful 
and we have diet and lifestyle, and then we have uh, omega-3s, and that's what we have, and it's better than nothing. So let's just keep an eye on these folks and see if we can keep them from getting out of hand. This was wonderful. Thank you so much. It was a tough case, even for me, who has seen my share of tough lipid cases, but this was really stretching my own knowledge. Thank you so much, Elliot. Before we close, I would like to ask you about forgotten lipids, the triglyceride remnants a little bit, and perhaps your idea about looking in uh, LDL particle testing. Just briefly, do you routinely do those for your patients or do you just uh, ignore them? Surprisingly, maybe. Maybe it's not a surprise. Even though I'm kind of a deep dive lipidologist, I'm not a huge fan of all those special testing. I mean, I hate to say it because they're so cool and you learn stuff. and It's just kind of nice to have all sorts of fancy tests that nobody else does. But you have to ask yourself the question, so what? And the answer is, surprisingly, most of the time, it doesn't even matter. I mean, you've, you've mentioned remnants. We have excellent evidence that remnants are important in atherogenesis, but we don't have a good remnant test. Do you know that roughly half or more of all the information, all the data, published data about remnants being a strong risk factor for atherosclerosis have calculated remnants from the Friedewald equation? And if you think through the math, what that means is triglycerides divided by five. So if you take triglycerides that are below 400 or so, and you divide them by five, that's VLDL cholesterol per Friedewald. And that's remnant cholesterol. And that's great. Except I'm going to ask the question, why did you bother to divide the triglycerides by five? Just tell me what your triglycerides are, and then you know what you need to know. So the triglycerides, whether they're fasting or non- and that'll give you a risk prediction, just like I said uh, earlier regarding HDL, uh, it predicts risk. But then the question is, well, so what? So calculate remnants? No, don't bother to calculate them. Well, what about measuring? Well, there's some cool ways of measuring remnants, including some of these very fancy tests. And the quick answer is that those remnant cholesterol tests are not very impressive in terms of the literature to date. Now, I am glad to, to listen to new data and to read new papers, but so far, we just haven't gotten very far. And there is no consensus about how to measure remnants. And the people who know the most about remnants will always come back and say, we're not sure how to measure them. And we wish we knew a really good way to, to get a better beat on the risk, but we don't have it. So, Believe it or not, your best test remains the fasting. And if you want to do non-fasting, fine. But the fasting lipid panel, with maybe one little exception, uh, two exceptions, rather. So the fasting lipid panel. Why? Because triglycerides are very predictive. We know that. HDL, very predictive. We know that. And then you get the calculated LDL. And there, there are new ways to calculate, and there are better. So use the new calculations if you can. And if you can't, do the non-HDL. Non-HDL is a really good number, especially with the triglycerides slightly elevated. So then what are the other things that you may want to know? You might want to know ApoB. There's settings where ApoB is a little bit better. But if you're like I am and super aggressive in treating non-HDL, it probably doesn't add enough. A lot of publications where non-HDL and ApoB are exactly tied in terms of their prediction. And then there are others where ApoB is a little better. Fine. ApoB is a little better, but it's a separate test. And ApoB is expensive because we don't do it very often. 
And why don't we do it very often? Because it's expensive. It's a classic catch-22 where we'll probably never do ApoBs because we'll never order enough to make it cheap. And then the other test, and this is a very different test. So I'm, I'm, I, I get that people are enthusiastic about ApoB. If you want to get it, please do it. But you're probably spending more money than you needed to. Here's the, the other test that is totally different. Lipoprotein little a. Lipoprotein little a, we've known about this for 45, 50 years. We have just recently figured out that it's very important. And this is something that not one out of 10 of the most expert cardiologists know. So let's get ahead of the cardiologists as endocrinologists, right? There is an FDA approved treatment for elevated LP little a. And it's lipoprotein apheresis. And it works like a charm. I mean, we don't have 10,000 people in a randomized clinical trial because that's not how you do apheresis, but we have data that show between a 65 and a 95% event reduction. And you heard me correctly, event reduction, 65 to 95% in several published series of patients whose LP little a is more than double upper limit of normal and they're on apheresis. So please... Anybody who's had a prior cardiovascular event, everybody with a prior cardiovascular event, and anybody you happen to be fond of and you want to help, help them live a long life, measure their LP little a. You only have to measure it once. It's genetically determined, doesn't vary much. And if it's high, it's high. And if it's normal, forget about it. So if it's more than double normal, then you really need to pick up the phone and refer your patient to the nearest apheresis center. Because otherwise, you're really not helping the patient, okay? Five years from now, we'll probably have a shot that'll lower LPLA. Hooray. How many of our patients are going to die in the next five years waiting for the shot? When the shot is approved, and it probably will be approved, but you know, my prognostication on clinical trials isn't very good, but let's just assume for the moment the trial will show benefit. I think it should. Then five years from now, stop doing apheresis and start doing the shot. But you're still alive five years from now. So there are a lot of people that don't know that there's an FDA-approved treatment, don't know that it works incredibly well, and don't know that it's available wherever they live in the continental U.S. And I really want the word out about LPLA and apheresis because very, very few people have a clue that that's on the radar. And there's no way to predict LPLA. I can predict ApoB with a standard lipid panel, I, and I'll be pretty close. But I cannot predict LPLA. There's no way. And so unless I measure that test, I, I have no clue. This was such a great time. I didn't even realize how long it has been that we have been discussing. Thank you so much for your insight and wisdom. And I'm looking forward to talking to you more. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another great ACE podcast. Join us for another episode at aace.com slash podcasts and help us in our mission to elevate clinical endocrinology. Together, we are ACE.